chapter 52, I'd like to teach a message on the gospel, the gospel, Isaiah 52, and I will begin reading with verse 1. And verse 7 will be our key verse, our main text. Isaiah 52, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall be no more curse, or no more come into thee uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith the Lord God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord that my people is taken away for nothing. They that rule over them, make them to howl. And my name continually every day is blaspheme. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. So we want to look at the, the meaning of the gospel. What, what all does that consist of? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for another opportunity to fellowship. We do want to keep our young couple lifted up in prayer. We pray, God, you bless them and guide them as newlyweds. As we take the time to break the bread of life this evening and look into the word of God, we pray that you speak to all of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah prophesied some 800 years before Jesus ever was born, and he dealt with Israel and the nations. You can see in the first six verses that his prophecies regarding Zion, which is another term for Jerusalem, his prophecies for them regard the fact that they have become captives. And so it's a difficult time for them. And they have suffered much, <clears throat> but the Lord is telling them that people that have oppressed them, all of that is going to come to an end. And he tells them in verse 7 about these good tidings. And you can see when he talks about the beautiful feet that bring good news. I think all of us know the importance of good news. And we enjoy good news rather than bad news. And the Bible says the good news from a far country is like cold waters. And if you've ever had a cold, refreshing drink on a, on a very warm or hot day, you know how happy that, that kind of makes you. So when we think about this kind of a messenger in verse 7, we want to remind ourselves of the kind of person necessary to deliver this kind of message. Now, in ancient times, they didn't have a mail system like we have. But the kings did have trusted emissaries that they would send out to deliver what they believed 
was a message of importance. And so when looking at verse 7, there are several things that stand out to me about the character of the kind of messenger that someone would have needed. Number one, they need somebody that had a big heart. Somebody had a heart to endure because they've got to be able to press through all kinds of challenges, whether we're dealing with robbers and thieves and other trials and circumstances in order to get from point A to point B. I think also they certainly would need some robust health because in ancient times, if you're going to cross hills and mountains and valleys without trains, cars and bicycles, you're going to need to go from here to there and be strong. A messenger for the king is going to be a person that has to be able to handle the word of God. And they've got to be strong enough to deal with what the Lord describes as uh, an unhappy countenance. The Lord told Isaiah and Jeremiah in so many words, don't be afraid of their faces. So you do know that everybody's not always happy when you bring them good news, right? You do know that. There's some people don't want to hear the gospel. And when we look at verse 7, when we think of good tidings, we're talking about the gospel. The gospel itself is an English word that simply is a synonym for good tidings or glad tidings. And when we talk about salvation, we certainly are speaking of the gospel. And the good news the messenger is bringing in verse 7, he's letting everybody know God still reigns. And people need to know that, regardless of what it looks like. I know it seems like the Egyptians and the Assyrians are strong, but God reigns. And even though we see all of this turmoil today in Yemen with their civil war, with uh, the Ukraine and Russia and with other nations that are having difficulties, let's never forget that God reigns. And, and that's going to be good news for anybody that believes in God. May not necessarily be good news for people who don't believe in God. Uh, you can see also in verse 7, the individual who's going to be a messenger has to be bold in their delivery of the word. Wherever they go, they've got to publish the good tidings. They've got to declare what it is the king or whoever has sent them is telling them to say. This is what a, a minister is supposed to be. He, he's, a, he's, he's unlike a mailman because a mailman comes and he just slips something in your box and he doesn't read the mail. He just delivers it. Now, you know as well as I do, it doesn't matter what the, the weather is, he's got to be out there. And I can think of a number of occasions where we've had 15 to 20 inches of snow and the mail is still being delivered at 8 o'clock at night. So the mailman has to be out there regardless, but the mailman is not going to talk to you about God. And he doesn't care about your spiritual condition. And if he does care, he's not or she's not going to say too much about it. However, this messenger, when he or she comes to the mountains and comes over the mountains, they're coming with good news to let you know God still reigns. And whatever valley you may find yourself in, or whatever mountaintop you may believe that you're presently on, the message doesn't change. God reigns. You get bad news about an affliction. God still reigns. You get bad news about the loss of life somewhere. God still reigns. Tiffany and I were talking as we were coming down here today just about how different circumstances of life are for people all over the world. So yesterday we rejoiced and praised God because two people were united in marriage and there was happiness and there was a lot of smiles. 
But then there were other people united in marriage in other parts of the world, and they were on the run for their lives. Yeah, so everything is different. Other people dealing with missiles that are coming to where they are. Regardless of what our circumstances are, the circumstances will change. And it's just like the little phrase in the Old Testament in the Old English version that says, and it came to pass. Everything changes. It does. It comes to pass. It doesn't come to stay. It comes to pass. Things are constantly moving. But the one thing that doesn't change is the message. Our God does reign. He, he, he does reign. And then the other thing that I was thinking about in verse 7 is just the fact that uh, the message has to be clear enough for everybody to understand it. There's no sense in delivering a message that people can't understand. And even in Paul's epistles, he said, what good is it if somebody, you know, is trying to send a signal to somebody, but they, you know, give it in such a way people can't comprehend what's being stated. If we want to be understood, then we need to speak plain enough for people to hear it. And God calls men and women to teach the gospel so that other people can hear it. And in hearing it, they believe it. And in believing it, they're sealed with the Holy Spirit, marked by God. Now, when I was called to preach the gospel I wasn't like a lot of people who run from the calling. You hear some people tell that story about when God was dealing with them. They, oh, I didn't want to be a minister, and I ran like Jonah, and I was going in a thousand different directions. That was never my testimony. I became a Christian, and immediately I wanted to be a preacher. I could see myself preaching. I had a desire to tell folks about the king. And so that's pretty much what I just started doing and uh, knew that that was the direction that God had for my life. And my my uh, my mom wasn't too pleased about that at all. And she said, look, we don't have no preachers in this family. So why in the world do you want to get involved with something like that? Well, I had an auntie who was a Baptist lady and my aunt Pearl she went to a church that was pastored by a man whose last name also was Sutton, who was a distant relative. And she told my mother, you can't tell that boy that he can't preach. God can call him at any age he wants to call him. And so my mom was telling my auntie, well, he ain't calling him. Well, her and God were on a different page. And she and I were not on the same page because God certainly was calling me. Well, I, I did become a, a preacher at a te- as a teenager and, and loved the Lord and was sharing the, the good news any way that I could, I could. But I remember when I received my ordination. I was down in North Carolina, and they had invited my mom and pops down there, and all these preachers came in from this whole region to be part of this, this whole pageant that they they had for me, and the church was full. I had some of my close friends that were my age there. I was only 19 or 20 at this time, and so they, they I had to choose someone that I wanted to preach my ordination sermon, 
So I had a friend named Green, Reverend Green. I had him preach that. And then the guy who was over all the preachers in that region, an old holiness preacher named W.K. Rayner, he came and he did the charge and the ordination. So they bring me down. He puts me down here and he lays his hands on me. And all these preachers come and they just descend on me like piranhas. And they're all laying hands. He starts praying. All of them are praying. The church is making a whole lot of noise as they're involved with prayer. But in the middle of that, he's praying that God would lead me and bless me and so on. But he also prayed, God, help him to preach your word. But if he ever ceases to preach the word the right way, just, Lord, go ahead and take him on out of here. You know, just kill him. You know, you know somebody pray a prayer like that, you kind of move out from under the hand. Wondering what that's all about, but but that surely was how he prayed. And you know, I've heard on several occasions other people who've heard prayers or had prayers prayed over them that was similar. But here's the thing that I do know: they were trying to help me to see that being a messenger for God was serious business. You can you can destroy a person's life. With the wrong message. You can mislead a person and they'll never get back on track with the wrong message. And that's what they were trying to communicate. So this this messenger here in verse seven, when it says how beautiful upon the mountaintops are the feet of them that bring glad tidings, people appreciate a messenger that brings good news and knows what news they're bringing. Now, let's go to first Corinthians 15. And I want to show you now of what this message consists. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's talk about its content. The gospel. It says in verse number one here, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you have received and wherein you stand. The gospel means good news. Verse two, by which, talking about the gospel still, Also, you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. And that he was buried, still part of the gospel. Because if he was buried in the tomb, then our sins are buried and erased in the blood. That he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So his resurrection is sure that's part of the gospel. And the fact that it was prophesied before it occurred, that's part of the gospel. What else is part of the gospel? His birth. Remember the scripture says when Jesus was born that the angels were in the heavens, were in the skies, and they were saying, we bring to you glad tidings. That's the gospel. Unto you is born a savior. Okay. So John the Baptist tells us later in John chapter one that uh, here's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. How can he do that? Because he was without sin. He was perfect. He was the spotless lamb of God. The gospel has a number of different elements. And what is amazing to me is that the content of the gospel is necessary For our Christian life in this way, if you have a good grasp of his incarnation, of Jesus' birth into this world, then you can believe 
in the new birth and regeneration. If you believe that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost in Mary's womb, then you can also believe that God can supernaturally give you new life and you can be born again. And with that regenerated nature, you now can live the life that is like Christ. How did Christ live? He lived without sin. We're born of God. The Bible says in 1 John, he which is born of God does not practice sin. But Paul also makes it very plain that we that are in this body still have a law of sin that operates in us. This old man, this old nature. Paul says that the Christian life is about putting off the old man, putting on the new man. To make it simple, that means that we're constantly getting rid of old attitudes, developing Christian attitudes. How do we do that? Through the renewing of our mind. Through the renewing of our mind. Jesus grew in wisdom. And Jesus lived in this world, suffered temptations, was tempted in all points like us. So that we as Christians, when we enter into a temptation, we have an exit sign now. There's one here that's glaring and it's radiating and it's glowing in the middle of the darkness. And we can choose to go in the direction of the exit sign saying no to the devil. Or we can yield to temptation and go right into sin. It's a choice that we have every day. Now, make no mistake about it, there have only been three people on planet Earth that have ever lived without sin, and none of them are in this room right now. Yeah, there's only been three, and two out of the three didn't even make it. That was Adam and Eve. Jesus is the only one that's come from the cradle to the grave to the throne and didn't sin. All of us that are here right now, we've needed the blood today. Yeah, I know Tiffany has. Yeah, we, we've all needed the blood today, see? So we, we understand that. Our relationship with God is secure on the basis of that righteousness. But the scripture says, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, the man Christ Jesus. But when we do sin, we don't sin because of that new nature. We sin because of that old nature. So being born of God means the Lord has given us the ability to overcome world, the flesh, and the devil. What else does this mean for the gospel? It means when Jesus climbed up on the cross and bore our sins, he bore those things so that we wouldn't have to. You, you do understand that he suffered so that we wouldn't have to suffer for sin. We still suffer because of our bad decisions. Yeah, we still suffer because sin is in this world. We have colds and aches in our bodies and things like that from time to time. But, but understand, why then, if he bore it, should we run around and spend the rest of our life expecting to carry it if he bore it? Let's use our faith to believe since he carried it away I can be free. What did he carry away? The sin. So if he dealt with the sin, he deals with the consequences of sin. What are the consequences? Guilt, shame, condemnation. You have to refuse to live a life that that is under that burden. Once you come to Christ 
and you accept him as your savior, your sins are forgiven. But now that you're saved, First John says, if anybody sins, we have a, an advocate with the father, the man Christ Jesus. And if we come to him and confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So for the rest of our life, we have an unending flow of blood that cleanses us when we do wrong. Yeah, that's why the spirit of God points out things to you and to me and lets us know if we say or do anything wrong. Just like a few moments ago, I was bothering my wife. You know, first thing that happened in here. Why are you bothering her? Hey, hey, hey. Hey, calm down back there now. See, see, so right there, the spirit of God starts working on that heart. And he says, why are you bothering her? See, I'm so sorry, sugar. Okay, so his, his, his time on the cross was to bear our sins. Then the scripture says he was took down, taken down, and then buried. So that's important because with the content of the gospel, if he truly was buried and he bore all the sins, all of that was buried, all of that was covered, all of that was taken away. And I must believe that when he came up out of the grave, everything that he was buried with, he left there. And as a Christian, I have to understand that when I've been forgiven, it's gone. It's gone. Whatever may have happened in your past, however brutal it may have been, whatever kind of abuse you may have suffered or abuse you may have put on somebody else. Once you come to him and ask for forgiveness, you're forgiven. And so let all of that that's in the past remain in the past. And I found that a lot of Christians struggle with that. They, they, they really, really do. They have a hard time thinking that God can just say it, it's all done. But, but he can. He does. He does it every day. A gentleman one time who uh, lived, a, lived a pretty bad life, was a biker and always and always a lot of trouble. And I mean, his kids would tell me all kinds of things he used to do when he was younger, but he started coming out there to the Red Cloud Church, and, and I remember witnessing to him and talking to him, and, and he was telling me, you don't know what all I've done. I said, well, no, I don't. I really don't need to know, but I do know what all he's done because I know what he did at Calvary, and what he did is enough to handle what you've done. Well, he wouldn't believe me, but he came out one Sunday, and I preached, and then afterwards, I'm giving this call for salvation. People want to get right with God, walk with God. And, and he, 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 I could see he was, he was under conviction, but he, he didn't raise his hand or anything like that. But immediately afterwards, I was talking with him, and he was saying it just can't be that simple, that, that I can believe, and then the Lord will just erase everything I've done. I said, it is that simple. And we were standing down by the front pew, there at the corner there, and I said, I tell you what, I said, Arlen, you and I can get right down here on our knees, and I said, I promise you that the Lord save you right now and wash away all of your sin. He said, but pastor, here's what I've done, and he started going through all this again. I said, look, it doesn't matter. That blood that works for somebody else also works for you, and got down there and led him in prayer, and uh, in just a few moments, his life was changed. Life was changed because of the gospel power of the gospel. Once he believed and received the fact that his sins were buried, they're gone. See, once you accept that, 
That changes everything. I can start over now. I can start anew. And even the people that I run into from my past or the devil who's whispering in my ear, constantly telling me about what I've done. I can ignore those voices because the main voice is saying you're forgiven. Yeah, that's important, folks. That's important. So this is why the content is essential. And then, of course, Jesus being raised from the dead. We're justified by our faith through his resurrection. If he wasn't raised from the dead, Paul says in this same chapter here, our faith is in vain. The fact that he came up out of the grave means that my faith is correctly and adequately and solidly placed where it needs to be. And I truly am changed and born again. Well, if if I know that, then that kind of content makes it possible for me to live a life that is uh, influential. And I can touch a whole lot of people with my witness because all of us in here have a different testimony. All of us. Your path is totally different than mine. And, And however God led you to the cross, that is essential for the Lord speaking to somebody else. You, you may not have had a, a past that was bruised and, you know, come through a whole lot of uh, sin and deep, dark sin and all of that. You, you may have just come through a life where it just may have been self-righteousness. You just thought you were just as good as anybody else just because you were nice. No, but the blood works for everybody. Lawyer, janitor, school teacher works for everybody. The same preachers. There are plenty of messengers in the pulpit every day who Teach the gospel and don't believe it. They don't believe what they're teaching, but they're paid to teach it. And that's the thing. Go to Romans chapter one. Show you something else about the gospel. So we just gave you some information regarding the content. I think the ascension is fairly plain because we all are going to make our way to heaven. And without a doubt, we're going to be caught up, caught away just like our savior was and will forever be with the Lord. But in Romans 1, look at verse number 16. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed. Shame is a a feeling or a sentiment that causes people to not want to step forward. If you're ashamed of yourself, then all you basically want to do is hide in the shadows. And you want to hide in the crowd and you want to stand behind people. If when you were raised, you didn't think too highly of how your mom and dad clothed you, even though that might have been the best they could do in clothing you, if you were ashamed, then you felt bad about what you were wearing. If where you were raised, if you were ashamed of the house you were raised in, if very well, again, that that was what mom and dad were able to come up with and, 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 and keep a roof over your head so you could hold body and soul together. If you were ashamed of that, then you likely didn't want anybody to come to your house. If, if you would have had parents that were uh, violent, with each other, abusive towards each other. One party gets angry and uh, puts a fist in the wall and then there's a hole. 
And then the hole isn't repaired, and then three months later, then there's another hole. Then so you grow up seeing holes in the wall, then it's likely you would not have wanted your friends to visit. Because you would have been ashamed of the atmosphere you were having to deal with. But think of somebody who's ashamed of the good news, ashamed of the gospel. Why would they be ashamed? I can't think of any good reason to ever be ashamed of Jesus. But there are people who are ashamed of the gospel because they don't like how they were raised. They don't want people to know that they're one of those folks that had to go to church consistently. Or they don't want people to know at one time in their life they were reading the Bible. Maybe they're trying to blend in with a culture that is anti-Christ and they want everybody to believe that they're as foul and vulgar and pagan as the rest of them. And don't want anybody to know that there ever was a love in their heart for God. But Paul is saying he is not ashamed. Of course he isn't. Goes to jail for Jesus. He's persecuted and beaten for Jesus. He opens up his mouth and tells as many people as possible about Jesus. Why is he not ashamed? Because he remembers what he was like before he became a Christian. He persecuted the church. He stood there when Stephen was stoned to death. He watched the Jewish people chuck stones at their Jewish brother. And Paul stood there and the Bible says he was happy to see him die. So when he became a Christian, he realized I shouldn't have never been that excited about seeing a a fellow believer persecuted. And Paul then found that because now all of his sins had been forgiven as badly as he treated Christians, he said, I'm forever a debtor to Christ, a debtor. He believed he owed God everything. This is why we should never be ashamed of the gospel. Everything you have, you have because of Jesus. If there's any goodness in your life right now, it is only there because of Jesus. And you know it's true because there's some people in here remember what you were like before you became a Christian. So if, if Jesus wasn't part of the equation at some point in your life, then, oh my goodness, that's, that, that's not good. But if he's part of the equation in your life now, then don't ever allow people to push you down or push you back Because this gospel is what changes lives. And as Paul says, it's a power, the power of God. I think John says it this way. To as many as believe, he gave them power to become sons of God. Power. It's a transforming thing. And God can do it just like that. He can do it quickly. The power of God. Look at verse 16 again. Now this power is specific and it's directed to a specific object. It says it is the power of God unto salvation. That is the goal. Now I don't know what it is about the story of Jesus that just changes life. Just hearing it. I mean if you think about it, somebody can get up and put on the blackboard or on an erase board or something, all kinds of mathematical formulas and stuff like that. And there may be a handful of people get excited about that, but it's not going to transform somebody's eternal destiny. But you, you stand up in front of a group of people, or you talk privately to someone, and you say, look, there was an innocent man who never did any wrong. 
And all he did was travel and teach parables, tell people about the kingdom of God, and he would take babies in his hands and bless them and heal people. People get excited about that. And then you, you continue on with the story and you tell them about how <clears throat> he was so generous and, and so uh, had such a, a sharing heart that he then gave to his disciples the ability to do what he was doing. And then the 70 others, the ability to do what he was doing. And when they found somebody who wasn't even a follower, but had heard him and was doing the same thing, he said, look, if he's not against me, he's for me. This guy had people going around Israel village by village, telling folks about the king. And there were individuals that got angry. They conspired to kill him. One of his own disciples betrayed him. A man came up to Jesus, as he was praying in a garden, planted a kiss on his cheek, which was the sign to the arresting officers to grab him. And they didn't handle him like a gentleman. They handled him roughly. Then hauled him off to the high priest. who Then slapped him. Hauled him off to Herod and Pilate, who then had him spat on and beaten and then after he had had stripes laid on his back, they told him that he's going to carry his own cross to a, a hill outside of the, the city. And he had to carry that big, huge cross marching down the streets with a string of women that were weeping behind him. And he's still trying to comfort and console them. Don't weep for me. You ought to be crying for yourself. Yeah. And he gets there to that, that hilltop. And them Roman soldiers are standing there waiting. And he just about falls on top of that cross. And them soldiers grab that large mallet and those nails. Not, not some small carpenter nails, folks. I'm talking some very big nails. Thick nails that's got to penetrate hands and feet and wood. And they're going to lay him down on there. And then they're going to hoist him up between earth and heaven. And people are going to walk by and mock him and sneer. And he never did anything wrong. And even in his dying breath, he's able to say, regarding the Roman soldiers that are gambling for his clothing, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Then you tell that story about how he was raised from the dead. I don't know what it is. That story on any part of this planet in any country, to any ethnic group, it grips their heart and it changes them. Yeah, it changes people. I had a man one time in the middle of the message in an underground church in Saudi Arabia. I don't think I was 15 minutes into the message. He just jumped up and said, I want to be saved now. All I was doing was telling the story. See? There's something about that story that that grabs people, and the scripture says it's a power unto salvation. And God doesn't say you have to have an altar call for somebody to be saved. They just need to hear the story and believe. Oh, you know how, how we, 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 we do it. You know, If you want to become a Christian, come on. We want you to make a decision for the Lord. We want you to come on down here. You know, by the time the bulk of those people leave the bleachers in the stadium and get down there, they're already saved. They've already believed what Mr. Graham said as he was proclaiming the word of God. I've preached and then I've said, look, if you don't know the king, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to count to three. And I say one and I say two and then three. I say, stick your hand up. Hands already going up. Most of them already believed in Jesus while I was preaching. 
They were under conviction. I could see it. But all we did was just cast the gospel net so we could bring them in and then help get them plugged in to church, fellowship, and life. See, it's not through our schemes. It's not through any kind of gimmick. It's not our methods that bring about salvation. It's the message, and it never changes. It never, ever changes. When Tiff and I had to preach a a meeting, I had to do a a dual revival for two Methodist churches one time. They were in different towns, separated by 10 miles. But I was one night here, then the next night in this Methodist church, and back to this Methodist church, and then back over to this Methodist church. And we did that for almost a week. And um, the pastor, because she had a yoked parish, she wanted both her congregations to be exposed to the gospel. Both congregations were totally different, even though it was just 10 miles apart. So they had these little advertisements, and they had these little handbills with a picture of me on there, and they were talking about I'll be there preaching. So I get there, step into the foyer of the one church, and there's an elderly man there with a woman, and he says to me, are you the one uh, preaching tonight? Now, he's holding the handbill looking at it. I said, that, that, w- that would be me. He said, well, it says here you know a whole lot about Islam and stuff. So I, I came out tonight with my girlfriend because I wanted to hear a little bit about that, that Muslim stuff. I said, well, I won't be talking about that tonight. I'll be talking about Jesus. And I said, well, do you, do you go to church here? He said, no, don't go to church live with my girlfriend here. We're just as good as anybody here in the church. I said, well, good. I said, okay. I'm glad to have you out. Hope you enjoy the service. Well, I got up, preached that night, and, and uh, was working on Nicodemus. And, and by the time I was done with that, that message, I could see the whole time he was under tremendous conviction. I gave the call for salvation. He's the first one up. He's coming down there. Next, here comes his girlfriend. Gives a heart uh, to the Lord. Lead them both to Christ, and here they were in their 70s, and a a power, see, in the gospel, a power so strong, so transformative, it changed them in probably less than 40 minutes. All that sin was dealt with in 40 minutes. And I know for a fact that later on, they got some of themselves together, because I asked the pastor whatever happened to them. So I know they got some of their life uh, together. So I go to the other church and, and I've still got to preach the gospel there. So had a had a good service that first night and afterwards went to the, the pastor's house and we're there having a meal. And she said to me, would you mind if um, a couple of people come over to the house and want to talk to you? So it was the, the school superintendent's wife and daughter. That wanted to come to the house. I said, well, sure, let them come over. We can have a late night meal, you know, as long as we got some ice cream or something like that. And uh, so sure enough, they, they, they came on by, and I'm sitting there with the uh, superintendent's wife, and she, she wants me to minister to her daughter because her daughter had a friend who was in the car with some people that were drinking, and the people uh, had a terrible accident, and they died. And so this girl is just totally distraught over the idea that her friends are lost and in hell. And it's just tormenting her mind. Well, all I can do, folks, is share the gospel and declare 
what the Bible teaches. Because I can't do anything about anybody's eternal state after somebody expires. But for the ones that are still left behind, I've got a lot of comforting words for them. And, and, and my conversation with her in so many words was like this. What did you learn from this? See? And start down that road. And then share the good news of, of the king and, and of the Lord. And in just a few moments, you know, God changes her heart and her mind to be able to see things from God's perspective because this isn't about your emotions and it's not about how you feel and how bad you feel. It's about what God's word says and the obligations that are placed upon us that are Christians. If he's our Lord and master and we're his servant and friends and sons, then we have to do what he says. And if we do what he says, the gates are wide open for us to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou in to the joy of the Lord. If we don't, we don't hear that. See, we don't hear that. And, and it doesn't do anybody any good to give folks a false sense of comfort if there's no comfort to be provided. Yeah, if there's none to be provided. The gospel is powerful. Uh, let me give you something else. Go to Galatians 1. Go to Galatians 1. Oh, my goodness. You know, I'm, the more and more we go through these Bible studies, the less I'm loving these clocks. I'm telling you, now would be a good time to set it back one hour. Galatians 1, verse number 8. Let me just quickly say something about the uniqueness of this gospel. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preach, let him be accursed. It's an interesting statement that Paul would make about an angel from heaven, you know. Yeah. Because he, he, he understands that angels can make choices. Let's not forget in the book of Revelation, it talks about a third of them. third of them decided to follow that devil. See? Choice. And if you were to have any kind of visitation that leads you to believe that another gospel is better than this, Paul says that is wrong. In fact, Moses says it this way. If somebody comes amongst you doing signs and wonders and then turns around and tells you, let's, let's worship another God. He said, know that I have sent him among you to prove you. We'll see what kind of trust in God you have. You're going to allow somebody to lead you into false doctrine. You say, well, pastor, you don't understand. Joseph Smith said an angel appeared to him. That angel's name was Moroni. And that angel told him that there were a race of people here long before there were Native American Indians here. And Jesus actually came here and preached the gospel to these folks. And these folks lost that gospel. And we, we should embrace that Mormon belief. I'm telling you right now, that falls right in the category of verse 8. Leave that alone. Yeah, leave that, leave that alone. And, and understand that the reason Christianity and the gospel is unique is because it does not make room for any other path to God other than Christ. Scripture says, if you're going to come to the Father, you've got to come through Jesus. Christ said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He said, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus had all nations on his mind before he ascended. And what he had in mind for all nations was their reception of the gospel. So he knew when he told his disciples to go, there would be death, there would be bloodshed, there would be persecution, 
Christians would be marginalized. He still said go. Why did he say that? Because it all happened to him. And he's never asked us to do or endure anything that he hadn't done or endured. So this is why the gospel is unique. And when people come up with new plans of salvation and create the kind of gods that, that, uh, that lead them to say things like this, uh, then I think it's false. So they'll say, well, you know, my God, he's accepting of all religions. Then you can have your God. But he's not the one in the book. And the messenger that published the good tidings in Isaiah 52, 7, he wasn't running around preaching the gospel of Baalism. And when he said, thy God reigneth, he was not talking about the God of the Philistines, the Dagon God. No, no. The messenger comes with the good news of who Christ is, and that is what makes this unique. This is what should be told to people. No matter where we go on this planet, they should hear it, they should know it. Our Jewish brethren need to hear about Jesus. African brethren need to hear about Jesus. Our Scandinavian brethren need to hear about Jesus. Our Hispanic brethren need to hear about Jesus. All Caucasian folks need to hear about Jesus. Same message, different places, but it's powerful. And when folks hear it, it changes lives. It changes lives. Amen? changes lives. Think, think of how, how glorious it is for you and for me to be a Christian. We hear, we believe, he puts his brand on us. That's all in Ephesians chapter 1. Yeah, he puts his brand on us. And God knows those that belong to him. Yeah, I believe that. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you. We are so grateful that we have this opportunity just to look into your word and to study the scriptures again. And Father, I'm asking you by your power to continue to use each one of us to be strong witnesses, to change, to help transform lives. Our prayer, Lord, is for anybody that's absent tonight, that you'd continue to encourage them. We pray that you'd help each of us to be a candle that can help set other folks' hearts on fire. We love you. And uh, finally, Lord, we ask you, uh, just uh, bless Amy Voss and just touch her heart and get her out of that car and back in here in service again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen, amen. Say amen.